Welcome to the Charles River Associates Market and Policies for Future Flexibility Needs podcast. My name is Laura Socha. I'm a senior associate in the energy practice at CRA, and I will be your host today. I'm joined by Mark Howitt, who was a panelist in our webinar a month ago, um, held in August 2021, for those who are listening to this podcast later in time. In that webinar, we discussed uh, current market arrangements and policy design and whether those remain fit for purpose for bringing the optimal mix of flexible capacity to enable net zero in the power generation sector in the UK. You can catch this webinar on the CRA website on demand. In this podcast, we will touch on a few points that we didn't get to discuss in detail during the webinar. And in particular, we will be discussing the various challenges for grid operation caused by the energy transition. Before we deep dive into our discussion, I will introduce Mark briefly. Mark is the Chief Technical Officer and co-founder of Story Electric. Story Electric develops innovative forms of large-scale, long-duration energy storage using compressed air. It focuses on technologically simple solutions using proven technologies wherever possible. Mark is a United Nations expert in energy transition technologies, economics, regulation, and politics. Mark is also a member of the UK advisory team to the International Energy Agency and a member of the Energy Storage Steering Group of the Renewable Energy Association. Welcome, Mark. Good to be here, Laura. So um, just as a, a brief reminder um, from our, our, our webinar held in, in August before we, we start, um, there were several key themes that came to light during the discussion. Um, so, so firstly, um, it, it was obvious that that the, all storage developers that were um, with us during the webinar, um, including yourself, Mark, um, shared the view that the future storage mix is a diverse one uh, with different storage technologies being required to address um, different system needs. Secondly, um, another point of agreement between um, our webinar speakers was that the application of energy storage can lead to, can lead to huge savings uh, for the energy system. And for example, it can lead to minimizing of losses due to energy curtailment, also the provision of ancillary services that are being lost as renewable capacity replaces traditional turbine generation. All that being said, um, we discussed some of the challenges um, that different technologies face, um, such as palm storage facing the challenge of lacking locational flexibility, and also of battery storage lacking investment investor sentiment um, due to prominent merchant risk, and also um, due to its ability to deliver only a few services at a time, and we'll, we'll discuss some of those today. Another point that was discussed um, is that everyone agreed that there is a step in the right direction, um, and that storage has been and, and, and is um, an, area, an area that has suffered from insufficient policy direction and market-based incentive mechanisms. These have been present for, for, for offshore wind, for example, where it's been commonplace for many years now. Um, and, and that's not the case yet for storage, uh, but we are moving in the right direction. And indeed, with the Smart Systems and Flexibility Plan released by BASE this summer, in summer 2021, the government is taking on board the views of storage developers and, 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 and is beginning to, to formulate market mechanisms to support storage development. The first question um, 
here for, for you, Mark, I guess, is you were, you were there at the, the webinar um, and it was a great discussion. Um, was there any other points that you took away from the discussion that, that really highlight the scale of the challenge um, that we have ahead of us? Yes, it was clear in that webinar and in everything else that's developing on the electricity system, that different players have widely different views of what's needed to achieve net zero. To a large extent, that's valid because they're all looking at uh, a technology that solves some very specific aspects of the challenge. But some put forward their models and solutions without understanding the breadth, depth and scale of the challenges. The problem with that is that those will only consider partial solutions, which meaning that more partial solutions will be needed for other parts of the challenge, leading to an energy transition that's excessively expensive and complex, as well as less reliable and resilient. That's, that's a really interesting point, actually. And, and you, you, you mentioned those, those challenges. Um, and we didn't, that's a topic that we really didn't get into enough, um, the, the detail of those challenges created and what services will be needed as a result of the energy transition. Um, we're obviously moving from a system, from a, an energy system traditionally dominated by rotational turbine-based fossil fuel generation. And the system will now need to then adapt to that of a, of adapt as that fossil fuel um, generation um, continues to be replaced by intermittent renewable alternatives like wind and solar. So can you, uh, Mark, maybe give us more detail on what the services needed uh, by the grid will be as a result of, of this transition? Certainly. Uh, the clue to the answers in the question, we're replacing rotational turbine-based generation with renewables. Now, turbines are dispatchable, which means that we can vary their outputs on demand. Renewables are mostly intermittent, meaning that they're available in certain weather or at certain times of day, whether the sun's up or down, whether it's summer or winter, things like that. So the first part of the challenge is turning intermittency into dispatchability. That's about time shifting energy, which means storing it when we have surplus for use when we have need. Turbines are, are as you said, rotational means they spin with real inertia, which provides grid stability, which is the basis of uh, other grid stability services. Now, if you want to understand grid stability, uh, think of uh, driving along a car in a highway and you have an engine failure. If the engine fails, you don't feel as though you're hitting a brick wall. You drift to a halt in a controlled manner. That's because the car has momentum. Now, a power station has the same momentum, except that it's rotational momentum, and that's what the inertia is. And that enables a smooth transition on the grid whenever there's an issue that arises. There's a third uh, aspect in that turbines also produce other benefits, such as reactive power and reactive load to keep the system working smoothly. Also, uh, renewable generation's intermittency means that their grid connections need to be sized for peak output, not for average output or demand. So in March, Britain's national grid put out uh, their network options analysis that said that they have to invest almost a billion pounds in network reinforcement for every gigawatt of offshore wind for that they're going to connect until 2025. And incidentally, the operational and maintenance costs is another 10% of that every single year. And those being connected after that date will cost increasingly more. We can avoid many of those billions of pounds worth of expenditure 
and the the eyesore grid that they'd have to build. That that's that's very interesting, and there's a uh, quite quite a few um, issues here that that you mention. Um, so we might want to take those one at a time to to discuss in a bit more detail. Um, you 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 mentioned um, inertia and, and sort of described that a little bit, and that that's that's really helpful. So perhaps um, could you give us a bit more detail in terms of what that means for the for the grid if it doesn't have access to this real inertia um, through through turbines? Certainly, I've already illustrated it uh, with. Uh, driving a car well essentially inertia is the rotating momentum of big machines that spin like turbines they provide that grid smoothing so that the grid doesn't collapse like it did during the blackouts in britain in the 19th of august 2019 when a million people their infrastructure and their industry were all blacked out and many railways stopped operation at perfect timing during the evening rush hour that was because the grid was relying on what they call synthetic inertia from batteries, which isn't inertia at all. It's a very fast response time. But any response time whatsoever is a gap, and any gap allows a problem to pass through, generally as known as a spike on the mains, but known technically as a rock-off event, rock-off standing for rate of change of frequency. So essentially the spike on on the mains was caused by two failures there was one power station that blew and one wind farm that got a, a glitch on its uh, mains feed and those two spikes on the mains were just transmitted right the way through the, the uh, system causing knock-on failures and hiccups all the way down the system which is how you ended up with million people being knocked off in diverse places, often apparently unconnected. Whereas with the right amount of inertia, probably a gigawatt or so of inertia, on the grid, in the right places, none of that would have been passed through, and so the blackouts would not have happened. Wind, solar and batteries and interconnectors, they're all connected to the grid via a DC link and therefore they don't have real inertia. Power stations and inertial storage do, they've got large rotating machines. In fact, the grid's spe currently spending hundreds of millions of pounds a year on, on turning off DC connected generations and turning up power stations and turning on uh, and also spending on otherwise pointless investments such as synchronous condensers purely to have enough inertia on the grid and also on procuring fixes for the other things that inertial, inertial systems would have to provide, be able to provide naturally, like voltage and frequency regulation. That's, that's, that's great. Um, and it really provides us with, 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 with that detail. Um, I, I suppose, obviously, you, you mentioned the blackouts of August 2019, um, and it, it sounds like a huge challenge. And it, it also sounds that some, some of the, um, solutions that are being found just aren't necessarily fit for purpose. So uh, I suppose my next question will be sort of, how, how would you propose to overcome this, this issue and this challenge? You, you mentioned those, some of those solutions not being fit for purpose. In fact, one of the prime ones is a multi-million pound dereliction of duty by National Grid. What they've done is that they've relaxed, spent millions of pounds relaxing the breaker set, uh, the breaker settings, so that uh, when a spike on the mains is, goes through the mains, it doesn't trip the breakers. 
but the breakers are there to be tripped in order to protect the uh, user's equipment. So the, essentially they're passing the spike on the main to the end, end user. As I say, it's a multi-million pound dereliction of duty. So our solution that you ask about it would be by putting inertial storage onto the grid. Inertial storage uses large rotating machines and therefore has an actual inertia. There are a number of types. There's compressed air energy storage, which is our technology, store electrics. That's the most cost effective, but there's also pumped hydro and liquid air energy storage. They're all inertial too. Others have been proposed as well. But they'd all put inertia into the system when putting energy in and ours can add it 24 seven, whether it's charging, discharging or neither. Well, it, it, it sounds like uh, your, your technology would, would, would definitely help solving um, that, that challenge. Um, and it's, it's, this is really interesting. I think it's a, it's, it's a topic that will uh, very much interest our, our listeners. That sounds um, great, and 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 that provides us uh, with a, a, a lot to think about um, in terms of, of of the challenges created, particularly from the the lack of inertia. Um, the second point you raised um, earlier when listing some of the the challenges um, was reactive power and load. Um, can you give us a little bit more detail on what those are, please? Yeah, uh, I'm I'm afraid that here we're getting rather esoteric. What most people think of as the power on the grid is technically a combination of active and reactive power. Think of it this way. Active power is what you can use, but reactive power is the push that gets it round the grid, or at least that pushes your machine round. You've got to have the right amount, which is usually about 10 to 15% reactive power. It gets the energy around the grid without con consuming too much of it. Large rotating uh, generators create reactive power, which can be adjusted to the amount that we need. And when there's too much on the grid, they can be used to take some off, which is known as reactive load. Rotating machines, such as you find us in factories, uh, they take it off the grid. They, they provide reactive load, which is why the grid needs to keep the balance. Inertial storage does this naturally. DC connected systems cannot. They can't deliver reactive load, and reactive power needs to be dedicated capacity that can't also be used for active power or other services. Whereas the rotating uh, machines, as well as delivering the active power, deliver the reactive power simultaneously from the same machine, reducing the amount of investment needed on the grid and the number of contracts required. Um, could you give us a bit more detail um, in terms of what those other services might be? Well, the services that grids need can be divided into five broad categories. There's energy, which most people, which is what most people think the grid is all about. Then there are balancing services, which means delivering the energy at the right time. It's called dispatchability. Dispatchability, a fancy word meaning on demand. And therefore it includes arbitrage, which is uh, buying when you've got surplus and selling when you don't have enough, which is a kind of uncontracted balancing services. There are contracted balancing services as well. The third category is ancillary services, which are based on speed of response in order to respond to spikes in demand like halftime in the European Cup final, or the results of a failure in, on, in the grid or a power station. 
ancillary services are all about recovering from problems. The fourth category is stability services, which are based on real inertia, which I've described just now. They're all about preventing those problems happening in the first place. And then there's a raft of other services, such as Black Start, which is restarting the grid from blackouts, constraint management, which is overcoming bottlenecks on the grid, curtailment recovery, sorry, curtailment reduction, which enables grids to avoid paying renewable generators to switch off and so on. So this, um, this is, it's got an, an impressive list and, 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 and I'm glad we're having this conversation because th these were um, topics and, and items that we didn't get to discuss during the webinar, but are very much key to sort of understanding what the, the challenge um, is um, sort of created by the, the energy transition for, for grid operation. Um, and, and, and in particular, the, going back to the start of the webinar, actually, you, you mentioned um, National Grid needing to reinforce the grid. Um, can you give us a bit more detail in terms of what that means? Yes, certainly. Uh, think of an onshore solar farm. Its peak generation is in the early afternoon and it generates nothing at all while it's dark. In between, assuming a lovely sunny day, which might not always be the case in Britain, the output follows a classic bell curve. Averaged over the 24 hours, the best output is that the farm can produce is about one sixth of its peak output. So the grid needs to be reinforced by a factor of six as compared with the base load output of say a nuclear power station of the same average output. For onshore wind, the factor is about four and for offshore wind, about two and a half. The factors are reduced if dispatchable or variable on demand is electricity is wanted. So if you connect the renewables to the grid through storage of the right scale and duration, not only does the generation need smaller grid connections, but also the grid doesn't need to reinforce as much or in many cases at all. This can save about a billion and a quarter pounds of grid connection capital expenditure per gigawatt of renewables connected, plus about a tenth of that amount every year in maintenance and operation costs, as I've already mentioned. But only if the storage has sufficient duration, which is six, six to eight hours for near baseload or even a fortnight's duration for true baseload. And these durations require larger scale storage than batteries are best suited for. Moreover, the most cost-effective systems will have different input and output power ratings. Because thinking back to that uh, solar farm, its peak output is six times the average output. So you want the input power to be higher than the output power. I don't know if any storage technology is flexible enough for this, apart from store electrics. But there's another aspect to this too. The renewables generate asynchronous energy, that is, without inertia. That means that the grid has to procure the inertia elsewhere and connect up that elsewhere, as well as doing the same with the balancing services. And even when they do, they need to manage the region with, between those balancing and stability services and the renewables grid connection, which would be less stable. By connecting the renewables through inertial storage, both balancing and stability services are added where they both most benefit the, the grid. As effectively, it's before the electricity gets onto it. And store electric can provide them 24 hours a day, seven days a week. At the same time, the renewable generation benefits from reduced or eliminated curtailment and from a customer for all its output. 
the store, storage benefits from a contract for all its energy and from a free grid connection. So all parties benefit, especially the consumer who has to bear the ultimate costs, provided the grid shares its benefits and the regulations change to enable it. Thanks, Mark. That was great. It's very detailed. And I think it's really helpful. In particular, obviously, at the, the very start of, of this podcast, we mentioned that there is still a need for, for technology developers and policymakers and, and even the, the public, actually, to, to understand the breadth, depth and scale of the challenges um, to be addressed as a result of, of fossil fuel generation um, being replaced by, by renewable alternatives. And we've just touched on, on, on a a couple of those challenges in detail and I think it just it really shows that that they are not um, that easy to understand and, and and discussions need to need to keep going between um, industry players and, and policymakers to, to provide um, solutions to, to introduce those. So moving to a slightly different aspect of the topic and I guess um, Perhaps more 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 high level here, but um, in 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 2020, um, with the outbreak of of COVID 19, um, this was obviously a very difficult time for for all everyone around the world. Um, but if there's one positive thing that we can take out of it, um, and uh, this is this is obviously us trying to find a silver lining <laughs> to 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 this year as much as we can. Um, is that it, it gave us a preview in, in, in the UK anyway, um, of a few months where we had a very high portion of intermittent renewable generation um, fulfilling demand. And, and, and of course this, this demand was reduced quite a lot um, compared to previous years um, due to the, the, the move to, to home by, by everyone. Um, but it does, it did give us a bit of a, preview of what the system might look like in the future. So I guess the next question is, is Mark, do you, do you think that 2020 um, and, and what I've just sort of mentioned led to the right questions being asked by the various stakeholders, um, sort of regulators and system operators, um, and they're now taking, and, and whether they're now taking the correct route, correct route um, forward to preparing themselves for the challenge of, of bringing in the right amount of flexibility um, in the right place to ensure that zero can materialize? Uh, yes and no. Um, if you recall, the first lockdown suppressed demand by about 15%, but it was a five month period with not only excellent sunshine, but mostly strong winds too. The result was that renewables formed a proportion of demand that had only been expected in the middle of this decade. During those five months, the grid spent 826 million pounds on curtailment, balancing, and mostly on stability services. Most of that could have been avoided with two to four gigawatts of our storage in the right places, especially if between the, the generation and the grid. So it really focused the mind on the services they'll need. That's the yes, but unfortunately there's a huge no. And that no is because the services being, are being addressed one at a time in a salami slice way and on short-term contracts that allow for little investment. The issue with salami slicing is that there is a single cause, the replacement of inertial generation by asynchronous renewables, but splitting up the elements of the solution prevents 
highly flexible plants delivering simple, cheap and integrated solutions. Makes it much more costly and, and uh, complex. For example, an inertial plant of any kind cannot deliver energy without inertia and other things. So if they win the energy or balancing services contract without the inertia of reactive power, voltage and frequency regulation contracts and so on, means that the storage can't deliver the energy or the balancing services, it puts them into an absolute legal bind. So by addressing it in a salami sliced way, it's, uh, it's making many parts of the uh, challenge harder to address by the industry. That's, that's really interesting, um, actually. Uh, would you mind giving us a bit more detail on, on, on this point? Well, let's assume that the inertial plant wins a contract for balancing services, but plant B wins a contract for inertia. Can't physically deliver the balancing services without the inertia because it delivers a balancing services uh, by generating energy or producing energy output at the right time. And it produces the energy output with a spinning machine, which has inertia. You can't do it, you can't separate the two. So does the grid take the inertia without payment, which is theft? And at the same time, plant B would also sue them for breach of contract. Or if National Grid pays them for the inertia, they're happy, but plants be still in the, sorry, plants B still sues them for breach of contract. Or if National Grid penalizes them for the inertia to compensate plant B, then plant B would be happy, but the inertial plant would go bankrupt and the balancing services will not be delivered. So the contracts need to be tendered and let together by a matrix method to deliver the best value, reliability, and resilience for the customer. That's 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 a really interesting point, actually, um, and 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 I think that was a, a great illustration of 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 why those those services need to be contracted together. Um, you did mention before um, as well a, a, an element, um, another factor to be considered, um, I suppose, is and and that one of of contract duration. Um, can you go into a bit more detail on that point? Yes, uh, firstly, investors need to see a real prospect of return on their capital. So these contracts have to be long enough duration to amortize the assets either in full or in part, in large part. Secondly, if uh, grids are built for storage between renewables and the grid, you can't just stop the storage contract because neither the grid nor the generation are big enough to cope without major multi-billion pound of reinforcement. So the contract has to be long enough to take that into account. But correspondingly, longer contracts deliver better value for money over con for consumers over the longer term, even if they may sometimes be a little dearer earlier on. It's the way to make the grid affordable, stable and resilient over the long run. And now going, going, going back to, to one of the, the key messages from, from the webinar um, that, that we hosted back in, in August, um, one of the agree, agreement point uh, between the speakers was that there's, there's obviously no one size fits all solution for, for, for delivering the, the, the plethora of great services required. Um, and you made that point as well um, in your presentation, everyone agreed. Um, and you're obviously the co-founder of one of the leading compressed air energy storage companies in the world. So we, we've touched on a little bit in terms of during this conversation on how, how your technology fits into 
to um, addressing some of the challenges, but can you um, maybe explain to, to the listeners how your technology also fits into the, the bigger picture and, and what sort of great services um, it, it can deliver in the future? Certainly, just to look at some of the other services. Um, Demand-side response, that's um, things like turning off people's fridges now to turn them on a bit later just to get over a spike in, uh, in demand uh, so that you're reducing demand. Um, that, that's uh, the cheapest and most cost-effective way to accommodate short-duration changes in demand, whether they're increases or decreases but it's necessarily short duration stuff because you can't turn off their fridge for too long. Moreover, in 2015, National Grid estimated that if a, that the country's capacity was about 5% of peak demand. And as you can't turn off someone's fridge frequently in a short period, that needs to be split if you need to use it more than once in an evening peak which reduces the potential to maybe one to 2% of peak demand on each occasion. So it's the best and the cheapest way of doing it, but it's limited in duration, frequency, and scale. And it has no inertia. Batteries have unrivaled response times and are excellent at operating at small and maybe medium scale and for half to two hours duration. Beyond that, doubling their size or duration increases their costs by 75 to 85%. Whereas large scale long duration storage uh, scales up much more cost effectively. And the asset life is eight to 10 years against 40 to 60 years for most large scale long duration storage of all technologies. So it's best used from, for domestic to local uh, distribution grid scale. So to get back to your question, our role is in the medium to large scales from 40 megawatts to multi gigawatts and for four hours duration to multi days. And because it's naturally inertial, a single plant can deliver a range of services that require up to half a dozen of the same size batteries, which makes it far more cost effective for the grid and for the end consumer at the, uh, as a result. And as you'd want from an infrastructure scale plant, it has the infrastructure scale life of 40 to 60 years. Thanks, Marcus. I, I think this is really interesting. Um, and, and I think our, our listeners will, will really benefit from, from hearing you present that because it, it do, does touch on most of those challenges that we have discussed today um, and, and shows us how your technology fits in there. Um, and, and we've obviously been talking through quite a few technical aspects of, of, of those challenges um, in this podcast. Um, and, and obviously at a very high level, um, what, what's needed is to ensure that our energy system will remain reliable and secure. Um, and, and to do that, there will obviously be a need for accelerated innovation in the space of flexibility. And I think you know, the, the presentation that you're giving us of, of your technology is, is, is obviously one illustration of that. Um, and, and it's where you come in. Um, you, you have yourself in, in the past developed and commercialized five product ranges and, and helped two businesses grow strategically. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm curious, um, in, in, in an energy sector that's highly dependent on regulation um, and policy decisions, what does that mean for innovators like yourself? Well, first and most fundamentally, 
uh, grids and uh, regulators and uh, government departments need to think much more long-term. They keep on putting out reports to say, oh, we're thinking long-term, 10-year horizon. That's not a long-term horizon. That wouldn't, with a 10-year horizon, the, the grid itself would never have been built. Um, with a 10-year horizon, you can't develop technologies that will take uh, more than five years to build. You can't reinforce the grid. The, the uh, times that National Grid themselves put on the system for building a brand new grid connection range from four to over 10 years. You need a longer than 10 year um, visibility of your planning in order to be able to do that. And that means longer duration, longer term planning in your regulations means that the regulatory in environment needs to be rethought, just like the grid itself. It means that they need to develop a view of how it'll look in 2050, that's 30 years time, and enact now all the changes that are needed to achieve this. Otherwise, we just won't achieve the energy transition by 2050, certainly not cost-effectively, reliably or resiliently. We'll just end up hitting a brick wall when the uh, low-hanging fruit is all plucked. These changes may be enacted incrementally over a period of time, but unless they have a 2050 vision, many day-to-day -day changes will be inconsistent with what's ultimately needed. And so greatly increase the cost and disruption of the energy transition. We'd be happy to uh, advise on that, not in a partisan way, but so as to benefit the entire grid and hence consumers in the medium to long-term, medium to long terms. One excellent example of this short-term vision, uh, potentially leading to billions and billions of pounds of wasted money, which uh, was thankfully avoided, was that if you recall, around 10 years ago, government and grid were talking up a second dash for gas. That second dash for gas was to say that to achieve the 2025, 2030, um, energy transition targets, we need to uh, build lots of gas-fired power stations in order to be able to close our coal-fired power stations. Now, if we'd have built those gas-fired power stations for the, to achieve the 2025-2030 targets, that would have mean that we'd have built assets with a life of 40 to 60 years that would have been unable to operate after 2040 because of the decreasing emissions targets. So you are spending billions of pounds on building assets that are going to be stranded in a fraction of their life. So you've got to have the 2050 vision and build according to the 2050 vision if you're not to waste billions and billions of pounds going up dead ends. I think that's that's such an interesting point. And, and... And the, the, the long-term the long view is, is, is one that, 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 that we need um, in a, looking at it from a system point of view. Um, and and we, we've been discussing in the webinar and in this podcast some of the, 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 the challenges that are created. And obviously, in some, of the, 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 in some papers that have been published in the past sort of couple of years, this um, point of finding a of making decisions which are going to lead to the lowest amount of regret in 30 to 40 years has been mentioned a few times. I think that's one of the points that you're making here is that you might make a decision now, but 
is 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 this one that you can you can safely say won't lead to to high regret decisions both from a financial point of view but also in in other aspects well that's that's exactly the consideration that has left led to today's fallacies because um the government and ofgem have been focusing on you'll recognize the phrase gold plating the grid we while the grid was nationalized allegedly it was built in a gold plated format uh spending far too much because they had a far too long term view instead of just maximizing the utilization of the grid so we spent the last 30 to 40 years maximizing utilization what does maximizing utilization mean it means sweating the asset treating it as a cash cow investing insufficiently so that virtually every single corner of the grid is saturated right now which therefore means that nobody can bring forward new projects that use additional grid capacity and therefore it's slowing the energy transition it also means that you have fossilized the shape of the grid into the designs of the 1950s to 1970s the economy of the country has changed since then i don't know if they've noticed heavy <laughs> industry has closed down in the north Uh, and in in the valleys of wales uh in large part and so we don't need exactly the same distribution of, of grid that we had in those days but unless you're proactive you can't change the structure of the grid then you look at the uh this so-called waste from this so-called gold plating It, every single part of the grid is now saturated now this gold plating might have meant that we were building capacity that wasn't needed when we'd expected it to be needed but this also means that that capacity has been used so therefore it is needed capacity it's just that the timing was slightly out so therefore there wasn't a single penny of wasted uh, investment in the grid because it's all being used and it's all found its uses and it's necessary so it's not wasted it's just slightly time changed now the difference between that and building it uh between building it reactively and building it on a plan was illustrated about a decade ago by South Australia and the Energy Networks Association has a splendid example of this in which South Australia refused to build a grid connection i think it was to New South Wales uh against plan because they said well we're not near capacity now we we don't know for certain as it's going to be needed uh we we don't want the risk of building a stranded asset we don't want to gold plate our grid mm. so they didn't until it became needed when it became needed that meant that the need was urgent that meant that the work was unplanned that meant that the work cost three times as much as it would have done literally three times If, as it would have done if it were uh, built in a planned manner so even if you were to build assets that weren't going to be fully utilized maybe a little later than planned you still save so much money in building a building to plan that it more than benefits you to do so rather than waiting to build reactively and that's a brilliant example um thanks mark i i think that's 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 a that's a that's a great example um and the plan um in in indeed is needed and it it is as you know as mentioned that we mentioned at the start of this this podcast there are discussions um currently ongoing and consultations and calls for evidence to 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 i guess 
input into that plan. Um, and um, just one, one, one other topic um, that I, I did want to touch on in, in this podcast is, um, is, is the drive towards a hydrogen economy. Um, um, how, how do you see that fitting into to the plan? Well, hydrogen's an absolutely brilliant fuel for the gas grid, for industrial processes, sun heating, and most transportation. I think that it's an absolutely necessary part of the energy transition. Um, but not all of it. People love to have one-size-fits-all solutions. It doesn't work. Hydrogen is not useful on its own for balancing grids. I stress on its own. I'll tell you why later. The reason for that is using electrolysis to remove intermittency of renewables, which is being proposed very actively by some parties, only addresses the intermittency of supply, but does not address the variability of demand. So it's only one half of the equation. You've got to address both halves of the equation, both sides of the equation, uh, to keep us all in balance. Moreover, it would need much more electrolysis equipment. So to take our uh, onshore wind farm, uh, sorry, onshore solar farm that we discussed earlier, it would need six times as much electrolysis equipment, which would be grossly underutilized in the same proportions to those I discussed in that earlier section um, about the size of grid reinforcements. So Electrolysis is much more cost-effective if it uses electricity that's already been balanced to near base load by large-scale long-duration storage. And I say to near base load because that's an awful lot cheaper than balancing it to base load. So you just find out where the cost-benefit curves cross for the duration of storage. So people produce, propose hydrogen fuel power stations in order to balance that second side of the equation. Now, th let's think about that a bit. The round trip efficiency of the entire cycle from electrolysis to the generated electricity back on the grid is at its theoretical best in the low 40%. At the moment, it's in the low to mid 20s. The efficiency of adiabatic compressed air energy storage, such as one of our solutions, is up to 70% even without future R&D with a much cheaper plant overall. For our hydrogen power storage, it's a little lower, <clears throat> but so plant costs, assuming a feed of hydrogen through the gas grid. So hydrogen and case are both needed, both complementary, and they compete very little with each other. Thank you very much for, for, for doing this podcast with us as a, as a follow on to the webinar. I think there was a, um, quite a few aspects discussed here, um, including inertia, reactive power and load, that were sort of topics that, that we didn't talk about in the webinar, but are actually great background to really understanding what the challenges are. Would you be able to sort of summarize um, what we've, we've discussed today um, for us? Yeah, so some summary is we need long-term thinking by grid, government and regulators. We need integrated thinking for integrated solutions. We need a regulatory system that is both long-term and integrated, but also defines storage as it is. Storage doesn't generate a single megawatt hour of, uh, of new electricity. It just 
moves unwanted electricity in time in a very analogous way to interconnectors moving unwanted electricity in space. It's got to be defined as a grid service, not as generation. Otherwise, you are um, subsidising foreign generation paid for by the British grid. Thank you very much, Mark, for your time today. Um, it was great to discuss those topics with you. And we will be watching the space, obviously, the, the government will be releasing over the next few months um, some, some, some more detail. They will be um, reviewing the call for evidence, the, the responses to the call for evidence. So we will see whether the government starts sort of thinking about this challenge as a simple challenge that can be very simply be fixed um, using your technology. <laughs> Among others, I, every, others. I, all of these technologies have their place. Well, thank you very much for having me on, on this podcast. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. For more information on related topics, please visit us at crai.com slash COP26.